So if you are new, then every week we go through a question of the New City Catechism, and this week it is question number 22. Uh, the way it works is I will read the question, and together we will read the answer. Okay? So, question. Why must the Redeemer be truly human? Answer. That in human nature he might, on our behalf, perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin, and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. You know, that's really one of the greatest truths of the Christian faith is that we have a Redeemer who can fully sympathize with us in our weaknesses. And he can do that because not only is he truly human, but he is purely human. He is pure humanity without tainted by sin. See, as sincere as we want to be, as sincere as we can be, all of our emotions are tainted with sin. How many times have we wrecked those closest to us unintentionally? How many times have those closest to us wrecked us unintentionally? It's because of sin. It is not so with Christ. Redeemer's motto is proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And that is what we're here to do right now, is to proclaim the excellencies of not only Christ being fully human, but being purely human, so that we may come to him with no fear of being cast out. As he said, he who comes to me, I will in no ways cast out. So we are going to worship the Christ in this moment, in this prayer, for being truly, purely human, fully human, and fully God. Bow with me. Jesus, this is the greatest mystery in the faith, one of the greatest mysteries in the faith, how you can be fully God and fully man, how you can be pure and holy and yet love and touch sinners, Lord, that you, that both natures have been joined together. Lord, we cannot comprehend it, Lord, but we can believe it, and we thank you for it. We thank you for the ability to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, Lord, for we are a very weak and needy people. We thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy that you see us with. Lord, we thank you for coming and dying and living and rising again for our sins. Lord, that you bore the punishment that we deserved, Lord, and that we are saved because of your sacrifice, of your atonement. Lord, we can never, in fact, Lord, we will spend eternity praising you and never fully comprehend the glories that you have shown us. Every day in eternity will give us a new glimpse of God that we did not know. Lord, we thank you so much for, for loving us. God, we are an unworthy people. We are a stiff-necked and rebellious people. And yet you have sought us out. You have loved us. You have died for us. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for allowing us to know you and to know the Father through you. We pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through your word and that you would help us to be a blessing to your people, both in this room, in this city, in the state, in the world, Lord, for you called us to go to the nations. Lord, we thank you for your promises that you are always faithful to. Lord, we thank you, God, for, for the institution of marriage that you have given us as a picture of you in the church. Lord, we pray for Jake and, I and Sarah as they come up today. 
Lord, as they come up to this altar, Lord, and they pledge their lives to one another with each other and before you, Lord, help them to understand that this is a covenant not only with themselves but with you. Lord, for what you have joined together, let no man separate. Father, we thank you for uh, Memorial Day that's coming up. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you've given us to live in a country that is free, Lord, that, that has the freedom to worship you. Lord, we know that it is only by your grace, God, that we are here and that we live in this country. It is only by your grace. And Father, we pray, God, that, that you would spark a revival in this nation, Lord, that it would turn to you, Lord, not as not from a political standpoint, not from a sociological standpoint, Lord, but from the hearts. Lord, we're not after we're not after external change, Lord, we're after internal change. Because then internal leads to external change. We pray, Lord, that you would let your gospel go out, that we would be a people who are evangel or who are always reaching out. Lord, we thank you, Father, for your grace and your mercy. And we pray that you would help us to understand them both. Be with Kevin as he comes. Open our hearts to hear your word. Help us to learn. Always be hungry for more of you, Lord, not of a doctrinal system, Lord, but more of you. Help us to understand, God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Our scripture reading today will be from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. So Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of God. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salmon bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and, very, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone for us for the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before them, them to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told them who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had seen her, seen and was seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things had appeared in another form to them, to two of them they were walking into the country, and they wept, went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterwards he appeared to the eleven themselves, as they were reclining at the table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who were saw by him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever, 
Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink the deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All right. Well, um, in my opinion, one of the main issues of our day is epistemology. That's kind of a, a big word, uh, but here's what epistemology means. It's the, it's the science of knowing. How do you know what you know? How do you know what's true? How do you know what's really real? Uh, a little over a decade ago, Stephen Colbert uh, coined the, the word truthiness, and hilariously, it ended up in dictionaries. And, uh, and here's the definition, according to uh, Merriam-Webster, it says, a uh, truthiness is a truthful or seemingly truthful quality that is claimed for something not because of supporting facts or evidence, but because of a feeling that it is true or desire for it to be true. In 1966, Time Magazine had a cover that asked, Is God Dead? And then 50 years later, intentionally with the same cover design, the magazine cover asked this question, is truth dead? Carl Truman wrote a profound book last year where he takes about 400 pages to, to unpack and try to understand how a crazy statement such as this, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, went from being absurd to being meaningful and coherent to so many. And, and a lot of us have scratched our heads as friends and those we loved have become lost in bizarre conspiracy theories. So how can we know what is really true? What is really real? How do we, how do we know what to believe and what not to believe? You know, I grew, up, I grew up in the church. And so I grew up my whole life. I never really had a problem with believing in God. I just did. I just never had a hard time with it. But then in college, I became serious about my faith uh, and, and, and that might even be when I became a Christian, even though I had the knowledge and I had some, some Christian habits. But when I was in college, when I became serious about my faith, and, and I, I guess you would say I believed and repented. I, I, I reoriented my life around Jesus to, to follow him, and it was a bit disruptive in my life. And you know what happened for the first time in my life? Doubts. Real doubts about the faith. And you know, what I, you know what got me? This is weird. I don't know if anybody else had this problem. You know what got me? I kind of had this idea that I was a Christian. The main reason I was a Christian was because of geography. I was in Mississippi. I mean, if you're going to be religious in Mississippi, you're going to be Christian. And so I thought, you know, the reason I'm a Christian is the same reason somebody else in Saudi Arabia might be Muslim. And so, and I'm assuming I'm right because my geography happens to produce Christians, where in Saudi Arabia they produce Muslims. And so why should I think I'm right? Because geographically, my culture happens to be 
this religion. So I, I really had a hard time with it. And, and if you've ever thought about it, when you grow up in like a, a mostly Christian culture, you'd almost have to make a decision not to be a Christian. You know, there's a lot of like people coming to accept Christ or become Christian or whatever. And, and those are bold moves. But really in our culture in Mississippi, wouldn't it be more bold for a young person to choose not to be a Christian? Wouldn't that be more disruptive? And so anyway, I, I, just, I was just unsettled by this idea that I was a Christian mostly because of geography. And I couldn't really accept that. So how do we know what's true? How, how, like, what, what kind of encouragement would you have given me then? Because it's not just what you believe, but how do you know what you know? Whatever it is you believe, how, do, how did you arrive there? And is it reliable? So what I want to do is we finish up the Gospel of Mark. I want to consider four things that I think will, will help us um, become more firm in our faith. That will help us to know what we know. And so first, I want to address the ending of Mark. If you notice in the, in the reading there, verses 9 through, tw- through 20 uh, aren't in the original manuscripts. <laughs> What's up with that, <laughs> right? So anyway, I want to consider that. But I think as we consider that, I think we'll be encouraged in what we find. Second, I want to consider the resurrection. Third, I want to consider the Great Commission to to proclaim the gospel to all creation. And then fourth, I want to consider the last few verses about the accompanying signs that the apostles had. Um, And if you've ever heard of of churches that that handle snakes, Mark 16 is their go-to chapter. Uh, It's even as I was researching this, I saw a documentary, a brief documentary of a uh, pastor who uh, was at a snake handling church. Um, he died in 2014. I'll let you guess how he died. Um, but anyway, I want to I address that issue. So first, let's talk about the ending of Mark. Like I said, it's somewhat surprising uh, what we see after verse 8. It says this, Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include verse 9 through 20. So we do not have, the church does not have the original manuscript that Mark wrote. But what we do have are copies of the gospel of Mark. The the printing press wasn't around then, so you couldn't just publish and print it out. And remember, for the first 1,500 years of the church, everything was handwritten. And so the earliest manuscripts that there are are remarkably consistent. However, what we see here is that there was one inconsistency, and that one inconsistency is noted. Like, hey, th- this is around a lot of the manuscripts, but of the earliest ones we have, this isn't there. And they make a note of it. And, you know, uh, uh, opponents of the authenticity of the Bible compared to the telephone game. They say they kind of dismiss the Bible, and it's just like, it's just, you know, what the telephone game is. That's when, you know, you get a group of people, and let's say you start down one row, and you have a message, and it goes to, through 10 people. And then at the 10th person has a message, it's all jumbled up. But, but that's not the way the Bible has worked throughout the centuries. And no honest critic would maintain that it is. So instead, what there was, there were several handwritten copies that were, that were written down based on the original manuscript. And, and, and instead of the telephone game, it would be more like this. Imagine, like, I have my, I have my notes here, right? Imagine I were to take these notes out, and, and you all were to, to each one at a time, Write it down word for word, being very careful to make sure you, you match it word for word. Okay, let's say next Sunday, a whole new group of people come in on, on Sunday. You guys aren't here. They're here, 
and they can look at all these manuscripts. And let's say, let's say if there's 100 people, let's say 98 of them are exactly right. But let's say two of them have like something extra at the end. And so maybe the, the, somebody writes that copy down and it says, hey, but there, there were these two that didn't have this, this thing in there. And so what it does is it tells you that, hey, people can come in here the next Sunday and they can know what I've written. The manuscript is there. So it can be clear. So, so here's what we need to know is that the way these manuscripts work is that they're preserved. There's not just a couple copies. There were thousands of copies. So we can have confidence that we do have what was written in Mark. And listen to how Brett Kunkel with Standard Reason explained it. He said this. He said, the number of manuscript copies of the New Testament is mind-boggling. In Greek alone, we have more than 5,800 copies consisting of 2.5 million pages of text. In addition, we have more than 10,000 Latin manuscript copies. If that's not enough, there are more than 5,000 manuscripts in other languages, such as Coptic, Syriac, Georgian, Gothic, Ethiopic, and Armenian. In total, there are more than 20,000 handwritten manuscripts of the New Testament's in various languages. To top it off, even if all manuscript evidence for the New Testament disappeared, we could still reconstruct almost the entire 27 New Testament books from more than 1 million quotations of early church fathers. Clearly, we have all the manuscript copies we need to ensure that what we have is what was written. Now, I imagine as I was reading that, I was Charlie Brown's teacher. <laughs> but here's the thing. Here's what you can know. Even if you got lost in the middle of that, like the scriptures are reliable. This was not the telephone game. There are thousands of manuscripts written down that were, that were from the earliest of times. And so we can have great confidence because of the consistency in this. So, so that is why it is encouraging to see this note in verse 9 through 20 that, this not, that it's not in some of the earliest manuscripts. That means that there is such great consistency in the earliest manuscripts that any inconsistency is worthy of being noted in the scriptures. So great care was given to preserve the accuracy of what was originally written. So we can trust the authenticity and the reliability of the scriptures. But, but what gives us even more confidence than the scriptures is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me talk about the resurrection for a minute. So let me say this too. I want you all to know that if you're having serious doubts about the faith, that doesn't like scare or, or shock me. This is something that I hope you, you would feel comfortable talking to me about. And that if you said you're, you're doubting the whole thing, that you would know that I would not be like, <gasps> how could you? Like, I get it. I've, I've been there. I've had doubts that I've had to work through. Uh, and and by, by God's grace, Rarely, if ever, am I any more weighed down by these, these doubts. That doesn't mean I'm above it or I'm so spiritual. What it does mean is I've, I've worked through them, and I've worked through them that when I get tripped up, I've already worked through some of these things, and so I'm not tripped up really hardly ever anymore. Um, and, and, and so I, I share that just so you know that, that if, you, if you struggle with doubt, it will not shock me. Uh, I have doubted my salvation. I've doubted the Bible. I've doubted the whole thing. So you can talk to me without feeling judged. It's not scandalous if you doubt the whole thing, doubt your salvation, doubt the Bible, or whatever. Instead, what I have found is that it's, it's helped me immensely to not suppress those doubts, but to simply work through them. I think, I think Christianity, the Scriptures, the Resurrection, I think everything 
that our Lord has revealed to us is strong enough to withstand any of our doubts. Um, so whenever I struggle with these doubts, as they, as they come up, and I have my unique things, as you might have your unique things that you struggle with, I have three anchors that, that keep me from going too far astray. Uh, one is creation. Now, this is more of, an, more of an argument for theism, that there is a God, than for Christianity explicitly. But, but for me, our planet, the way it's designed, the way it works, the way it spins and tilts and seasons and the complexity of it, and just the, the human body, the eyeball, the, the mind, the brain, like to me, I just, I cannot fathom that not being designed by an intelligent creator. I just, I just don't get it. I, I, so, so that's easy for me that there is a God. I, the Big Bang, I just can't follow it. Uh, all the other explanations for existence without a God, I just, I don't think they hold up. Uh, I think there had to be a creator. And if there is a creator that created something from nothing, then you know what? All miracles are on the board. <laughs> if a God can speak the cosmos into being, then he can heal the sick and raise the dead. These are actually small things. Second, so first is creation. Second is the prophetic word. Throughout the scripture, God, God is calling his shots, declaring the end from the beginning, and every word has proved true. And third, what I want to talk about now is the resurrection. Um, I, I've heard several stories in the last couple years about people deconverting. We actually have a book on the, in, the, in the bookshelf in the back called Before You Lose Your Faith, and it's about this deconverting uh, phenomenon that we're seeing happening. And uh, in any way, um, often when I'm hearing these stories of people deconverting, they mention a lot of the same things. One can be hypocrisy, in the church or with Christian leaders, you know, a, a church leader or a Christian leader falls and a person thinks, I don't know if I can believe it anymore. Or maybe they grow up in a, in a really strict home or a really strict church and they get older and they think that was madness. Or, or maybe uh, there's problems with some of the rules and laws of, of Christianity that, that uh, are really scratchy and people might not like. Especially in our day, uh, people have a problem with uh, Christians view, Christianity's view or the Bible's view of homosexuality. Uh, sometimes the idea of hell just seems unacceptable uh, to us, or it could be that the church is too political, that it's gone too far into that. And, and while these are important issues, and some of these are really difficult, before we lose our faith over things like this, we have to ask this question. What does that have to do with the resurrection? Let's say this week, I just go off the deep end. I go crazy, I denounce the faith, I get on social media, and I'm just like, it's a sham, it's not true, and I'm just become terrible. Uh, that shouldn't affect you. What does that have to do with the resurrection? Well, that should affect you, I hope. Um, but that has nothing to do with the resurrection. It, it doesn't undermine the faith at all. And so whenever these ideas pop into our minds that can kind of knock us off balance, we cannot give them more authority or influence than the resurrection. And look, I would imagine at some point in your life or in the future, you will doubt. And perhaps you're even wondering now if it's all true. Maybe you're, you're miserable and unhappy in life. And you know what? Man, this is a big one. You're miserable and unhappy in life. And man, you're doing all you know to do to follow God. And there's somebody in your world and they, they don't care about God at all. They seem to be living the dream. Everything seems to go so well for them. And you can't help but wonder, God, 
Here I am doing all I know to do. Life is so hard. Here they are. They don't care about you at all. And everything is working out for them. They have the life I can only dream of. And you can't help but wonder if it's all true. And you know what I say? What does that have to do with the resurrection? Nothing. Or maybe there's some element of suffering in your life or someone you love, and you just can't help but wonder, is God really there? And and I don't deny that these things can be unbelievably hard and completely disorienting to the point where you're so broken down that you can't even imagine that God is there. But what impact does your sadness and your confusion have on the resurrection? The answer is, does not have any impact on the resurrection. When it comes to the resurrection, you have few theories to work with. One theory might be that Jesus didn't really die, that that he was crucified, he was buried, but then he he came out and he was okay. But but that would, would go against... That would not be consistent with the 500 witnesses that saw, that saw him alive and claimed that he was alive and persuaded 3,000 others to convert. And even at the cost of being persecuted by their own religion and government and many being persecuted to the point of death. Some might say that the Jews or the Romans stole the body, but they would have been very eager to produce the body because if they could have produced Jesus's body, that would have been the end of Christianity. Because if they disprove the, Christ, the resurrection, Christianity is done. And if someone were, to, someone were to ask me, they would say, Kevin, is there anything that can make you walk away from the faith? I would say yes. Prove the resurrection didn't happen. Y'all, if the resurrection didn't happen, it's not true. I'm done. If Christ did not die and then raise up from death, I'm out because Christianity is not true. The resurrection is what makes Christianity True or not? Another argument is that the disciples stole the body, but this would be crazy too, because if the disciples stole the body, they would have known it was a lie, and they would have lied to others about it because they claimed that they were with him when he was resurrected. And all the disciples but John died insisting that Jesus rose from the dead and that they were eyewitnesses of it. And so they would have known that it wasn't true, and they would have all died for a lie. And look, some people might die for a lie, but they don't realize it's a lie. But if the apostles died for a lie, they would have known it was a lie because they all said, this happened, we saw them. So look, when you have your, that, that next moment of doubt, which I just think is inevitable. I don't know if you're like me, maybe you don't. But if you have that next moment of doubt, which I think is inevitable, you know, a, a Christian does a horrible thing. You're miserable with your life. You're, you're struggling with some teachings in the Bible. Then go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ to steady and strengthen you. He really did rise from the dead. Your misery or others' failures or your problem with the Bible or other Christians doesn't change the resurrection. And so we have a firm foundation that we can hold to. Why do we know? Why why am I a Christian? Why why am I not just lost in the whole geography thing that I'm just a Christian because I'm from Mississippi? It's the resurrection. I, I can't find another way around it. And, and by God's grace for me, in the same way that creation utterly convinces me of theism, that there is a God, the resurrection utterly convinces me of Christianity. So now let's talk about the third thing we'll talk about is the Great Commission. 
In verse 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Now, while this is part of what we're not sure is in the original manuscripts, uh, there is some consistency here with what Jesus says in the Great Commission and other places. Like in Matthew 28, he says, Go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, he doesn't end with the Great Commission. But in the Gospel of Luke, part 2, also known as the book of Acts, it begins with something like the Great Commission, where in Acts 1.8, Jesus says, uh, calls his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So we can be sure that Jesus intended for his disciples to go and do this very thing, to proclaim the gospel and make disciples. And that they did. And the world has never seen or will they ever see anything like the spread of Christianity. No other religion has spread like Christianity did from being persecuted by the Roman government for 300 years to seeing Rome become a Christian empire. The gospel that began in the Mideast spread to Europe, America, Africa, China, India. And between the death and resurrection of Jesus, there was a small group of Jesus followers who were scared, hiding in a room together. And this little small group of scared followers of Jesus after the resurrection, turned the whole world upside down and Christianity became the largest religion in the world. Not because the early church was so awesome. You know, we read the Corinthians. The early church was a little bit of a train wreck, right? They're they're kind of a mess. But so the, the gospel spread, not because the church was so awesome, but because Jesus said, I will build my church. And he'll do it through fools like the Corinthians and the Ephesians and all these other folks. And even when the church began to lose its way, he lit the match of the Reformation. And from that, we get to saying that we will always, that will always be true of the, of the true church, semper reformanda, always reforming. And look, there are a lot of things that are hard to count on. Like, will I be faithful to the end? I hope so. Will Redeemer Church be here in 50 years, 100 years? Perhaps. Will the church of Jesus Christ be right here waiting for him when he returns? Absolutely. The church will persevere to the end. Now, let me uh, address the last part, verses 16 through 20, about these signs. In Mark 16, 16 through 20, we read this. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In, In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So the Lord Jesus, uh, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Several years ago, when uh, I was a director of of crew, Campus Crusade for Christ here at State, uh, a student gave me a track that somebody gave him one day. And uh, in this tract, you use verse 17, and it said, look, if you're a Christian, you'll speak in tongues. It says right here, they will speak in new tongues. Those who believe in my name, speaking in new tongues. And maybe some of you have heard something similar, where somebody said, look, you should be speaking in tongues. Here's the verse, verse 17. There it is, as clear as day. But here's the thing. Here's what we need to understand. Well, I should say this. As I was researching this, you know, I was wondering We sometimes joke around about like snake handling. Usually when people are joining the church, I ask them how they feel about snake handling just to kind of make them nervous. That's probably why I'm a bad pastor. Um, But anyway, uh, 
there is there was a church in Kentucky, and they they handled snakes, and it was based on Mark sixteen, and 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 very sadly that the pastor died from a snake bite uh, a snake bite in, in two thousand fourteen. He was only forty two years old, and and then his son took over after a few years, and and not long after that he suffered a, a terrible bite as well. And look, the, the father said, "If I'm bitten, don't take me to the hospital because this is one of the signs, right?" And when when the son was was bit, they actually took him in to the hospital. So, so what do we do with this verse? If somebody brings Mark sixteen to you and says you should be speaking in tongues, uh, you know we don't we don't see these people talking as much about handling snakes and drinking poison. I don't know how far their faith might, might go, but anyway, they don't say, they say as much. But we do hear this a lot about tongues. And so, how do we respond when people use this verse to say that we should speak in tongues or maybe even handle snakes? Well, a somewhat unsatisfying answer, and maybe not very persuasive, could be that these verses are not in some of the uh, earliest manuscripts, but that might not be very persuasive for some. I think a better way to respond is to understand the purpose of signs and miracles. And I I think I've talked about this before, and I for sure have at the equipping class. Um, But when we read the Bible, we see miracles happening left and right, people being healed and these crazy things happening. And so we might assume that these uh, miracles are normative for God's people, because as we read the Bible, they seem normative. So are these miracles normative for God's people? I would say they are, they are not normative. And whenever we see miracles happening in the Bible, something unique is happening. Usually God is confirming a messenger and his message. This is why we see miracles happening with Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and the apostles. And, and this is over a span of well over a thousand years. So really, even if you think in terms of the Bible, if, as just purely from the, the first like, the, the record of things happening to the, the resurrection, it's not happening left and right. It's usually when something unique God is doing and he's confirming a message and messengers. And so they don't happen left and right just because they, they seem to happen all the time in the Bible. There's a lot of time and space. And if it was recorded in the Bible, there's something special and unique that's happening. That's why we read in verse 20, and they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. So usually when the miraculous is happening, it's because God is confirming his messengers or his messages. And the apostles did cast out demons. And we read about them speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. That was in speaking in different languages. And we also read about Paul when he was shipwrecked at the island of Malta. If you remember, they were, they were gathering wood for the fire. And then while he was gathering wood, a, a viper bit him on the hand. And, and the, 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 the native said, oh, you must have been guilty for some sin. And this is God getting you back. And then he didn't die. Actually, nothing happened to him. And they said, oh, he must be a God. And so this is just an example of that they'll, they'll handle snakes and they'll, they'll, they'll make it. It happened to Paul. And so it's not saying, go handle snakes. It's just not saying that. Uh, and then Paul also prayed for the sick, and they recovered. God was confirming the message with accompanying signs. So I believe that these are unique miracles that were meant for a specific time where God's message was being confirmed, and that these signs have nothing to do with determining whether or not you're truly a Christian. So look, if any of you are ever approached with this, you need to reject it. You need to reject it. This is not how God works. This is bad hermeneutics, bad biblical interpretation when they're saying you're a Christian if you speak in tongues or handle snakes or whatever. And, and, and 
more than that, a, a lack of signs now is a bad reason not to believe. God has done enough already. <laughs> He's done enough. God has done it in creation, his, in the prophetic word, and the resurrection. We are not entitled to extra signs. Get that. We are not entitled to extra signs. Y'all, I ask for signs all the time. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say. It's just like, even should I do this or that? Give me a sign. Let it rain or whatever. Like, that's a bad habit. If you do that, you should stop. <laughs> so we, we, he's done enough. He's given us his word. He's revealed who he is. He's revealed his will, his, his will. And we are not entitled for God to give us individually extra signs. And, and I also want to share a couple of categories just for you to have um, in regards to signs and miracles. There's, there's two theological camps that I think you should know about uh, when it comes to these miraculous signs. There's cessationist and charismatics, or some might say uh, continuationist. So I'll say continuationist for now. So there's cessationist and continuationist. So ceased, continue, cessationist, continuationist. So cessationists believe that miraculous signs are mostly excluded to these unique times. And they might leave the doors open for miracles today, but they don't necessarily expect them or seek them out. And then continuationists or charismatics uh, believe these signs continue uh, regularly today. And while they might not be snake handlers or go that far, because uh, really that's just testing God, they might expect very much a missionary bit by a viper to survive. Or they might uh, expect to see miraculous healings more often. Now, the, the error of a cessationist would be that they close the door on God doing miracles today. The error of charismatics or continuationists would be to put too much stock in miracles being done today and being too rattled when it doesn't happen. But look, when it again, when it comes to God's signs, he has done enough. Wherever you land on that issue, he's done enough signs. He doesn't need to do one more thing. He's done enough for us to know him and for us to have confidence in how we know he has preserved his word for us to know him. Jesus Christ was crucified, dead, and buried, and rose from the dead, appearing to more than 500. The Great Commission, the proclamation of the gospel, the making of disciples, has been, against all odds, a success like nothing the world has ever seen. And, and obviously, there are a lot of bad things you can say about the church in general or about any church in particular, but that's because they're made up of sinners. But nevertheless... All of human history is moving towards the collecting of God's people, the church, the bride of Jesus Christ, to be given to him on the day of his return. And in that, we wait and we rejoice. And we know this, not just because we got that feeling, but because God has done all things necessary for us to have confidence in how he has revealed himself to us. Let's pray. Uh, Father, would you help us to have great confidence in you? You do not need to do one more thing to earn our trust. In creation, we see you are there. In the resurrection, we know that Jesus is Lord, Messiah, our God. You've done enough. The prophetic word the, the fulfilling of the Great Commission. Would you help us to anchor our, our souls in what is true, that we might know 
because of those things. And in our moments of weakness, when we uh, look around and are discouraged at what we see or find or feel ourselves uh, shifting away, would you help us to turn to you and to these things and that we might have great confidence in you. In Jesus, in your name that we pray, amen.